The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the headquarters of UBS here in Zurich. I'm Jeff Cutler. And of course, Karen and Steve are back in our London headquarters. So UBS has delivered its first quarter earnings. It's a 52% drop in net profit, uh, just over a billion dollars here. The bank, though, citing what it sees as a strong inflow of net new money. We'll talk about that a little later, obviously. The bank also says it is a, a, a place of stability in difficult times, particularly as we await the integration of Credit Suisse going forward. We will catch up with Sergio Amotti, the CEO of the business, eight Central European time for that interview. Elsewhere in the banking sector, Santander posting a first quarter net profit of 2.5 billion euros, topping estimates as the Spanish lender says it is fully on track to meet its 2023 targets. And staying in the banking sector, deposits at First Republic Bank fall over $100 billion in the first quarter, sending shares tumbling in extended trade and prompting the bank to slash its workforce by as much as 25%. Standard Chartered CEO Bill Winters strikes an optimistic tone, telling CNBC exclusively that troubles in the banking sector have mostly been dealt with. I think we can put the crisis behind us. I don't think we can put the issue behind us. So we know that, that when you get right down to it, what happened was we had a, a pretty dramatic change in the, the macroeconomic environment, in particular higher inflation and higher interest rates. And French luxury goods giant LVMH becomes the first European company to touch $500 billion in market value, joining the ranks of Apple, Amazon and Alphabet, thanks to a 17% pop in first quarter revenue. So a very good morning and welcome to what is going to be a very results-focused squawk box. This morning we've got a lot of companies out in many different sectors delivering their numbers, but of course there'll be a major focus on what is going on in the banking space. Uh, And I'm here at uh, UBS this morning just raking over the numbers that came through within the last 15 minutes or so. So let me give you the numbers and then let me give you some thoughts and some context here. So ultimately the bank has delivered... $2.35 billion on an underlying basis. That is profit before tax. That is down 22% year on year. But you've then got to factor in the fact that there is a $665 million provision here related to legacy mortgage-backed securities uh, complaints. This, This story with the Department of Justice in the United States goes back some 15 years, but it's obviously, it's ultimately about residential mortgage-backed securities. And whilst the bank is in uh, deep discussions here, this is a very specific number that's been thrown out for the provision. So that provision ultimately changes our profit before tax to 1.49 billion, which is down about 45% year on year. The bank is very keen to focus on the inflow of net new money. Let me just give you a, a few figures here. So in terms of the 
Uh, global wealth management business, $28 billion of net new money into the business. $20 billion of that was net new fee-generating assets. And the asset management business also seeing $14 billion of net new money coming in. Operating expenses were up uh, 9% year-on-year. The bank, though, says much of that is ultimately down to the litigation and the related provisioning. The cost-income ratio in at 72.8% here. In terms of the overall story, then, I think this is one of continued reduction in client activity at the business. Capital market activity is obviously down. If you look at the investment banking lines and you look at what is going on in equity market activity, that is clearly significantly lower. The loan book uh, really flat, I would say, effectively growing in terms of the Swiss bank, but across other segments or geographies, um, it is flat, particularly in the Americas, where it is down in Asia Pacific, it is flat. So I think the bank continuing to fight hard against uh, some of the headwinds we're seeing because of higher interest rates. Um, And then, of course, there is the much bigger question of the integration of Credit Suisse to come. No announcement this morning, nothing alongside these earnings. And, of course, it is one of those questions that we will put to Sergio Almotti when we see him very shortly, guys. I mean, look, it, 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 and thanks for the brilliant analysis, as ever, Jeff, on, on the situation now in terms of the UBS numbers. But can UBS, which says it will uh, complete the acquisition of Credit Suisse in the second quarter of this year, can it possibly know at this stage what it's bought? Because, I mean, there are so many people who have gone through the books at Credit Suisse over the years and invested in this company and lost vast amounts of money from Harris to the Saudis to other Middle Eastern investors as well and a whole host of others along the way as well. Given the fact that they are just going through the books now, can they possibly know what's there in terms of litigation, in terms of liabilities and in terms of just generally other skeletons in the closet? Because as you know more than perhaps any other journalist around, um, the, the, the plethora of bad news has just continued to flow for decades. Why should it just stop now and actually they'd be able to clarify and crystallise just what's on the Credit Suisse books? Yeah, I think you'll get a lot of sympathy with that view here, Steve, because um, that's why there's no announcement now. That's why it's going to take a few more weeks, I think, before we get some uh, serious perspective on what this integration is going to look like, how many job losses there may be, um, how different divisions are going to be integrated or reshaped or just cast aside. So everything, uh, I I guess, to a certain extent, is up on on the table. I absolutely agree. I mean, there are some, some current challenges. Let's, let's uh, not even talk about what may be buried in loan books uh, historically. But, of course, there are some, some current issues here as we look at the um, 81 uh, bondholders who are currently taking litigation against the uh, Swiss regulator, or at least some of them are. Uh, we've, we've got um, the SoftBank story, Credit Suisse uh, currently suing SoftBank. Uh, for um, ongoing concerns about one of those uh, big deals it did with SoftBank that ultimately blew up. Uh, So there's an awful lot that they need to do in terms of due diligence. And, of course, um, we won't really find 
out too much about that in these first quarter conversations, but ultimately in the fullness of time as we get the final integration detail, then I think we ha will have more of an opportunity to discuss that with management. Jeff, thank you very much for bringing us the details there. I'm just pouring through Santander and obviously comparing contrast as we look at some of the European banks. Uh, the deposit side, interesting. As we wrapped up uh, December last year versus uh, the first quarter of this year, those customer deposits down 1.1%. So there's been a bit of an impact too, even in terms of deposits uh, here at Santander, a very large bank. In terms of net interest income, if we compare the same quarter last year to this quarter, 17.4% higher. So they've clearly gone up with the interest rate environment over the 12 month period. If we take a, a shorter snapshot and you compare quarter on quarter, net interest income also still expanding, but at a slower rate, 2.3%. Just to, to plot some highlights here, and I think what's been interesting has been the impact of this bank tax, the levy that's been lobbed by the Spanish government on the banks in Spain, and that has had a material impact. What we've seen in the first quarter, attributable profit that amounted to 2.57 billion euros, that was just 1% higher than the same period a year ago. So in constant euros, it actually decreased 1%. Very slim ranges when you think about the level of profitability here. Uh, but to what the company is saying, results of the quarter were affected by 224 million euros changed due to this temporary levy on revenue obtained in Spain. Uh, they strip out the impact saying without that profit would have been 2.795 billion. Um, that would have been 10% higher than the same quarter a year prior. So they're giving us a comparison. It is 1% higher now. It would have been 10% higher without that levy. And that is seen as somewhat material. In terms of return on tangible equity, that was at 14.4%. That has gone up on the same quarter a year ago from 14.2%. So returns are improving. They say their cost base has decreased 1% in real terms. A uh, model of transformation that offsets some of those inflationary pressures also investments in technology and digitization. Don't forget, this has been a, a bank that's going hard after digital banking, and uh, it has been very much moving into that fintech space as a challenger, despite being a very large bank. In terms of what else we've seen here, just worth noting, I think uh, at this point, NPL is also interesting. Uh, the NPL ratio is standing at 3.05%. That is 21 basis points lower than the same quarter a year ago. So despite some of the concerns about uh, the impact on Main Street, on banks with higher interest rates, we're not seeing the impact here. But worth again noting, this is a very large bank across jurisdictions. And they point out uh, that is due to the good performance in Europe, Mexico and also the Digital Consumer Bank. And that is really a third arm now as we talk about um, the diversification of the bank, not just by geography, but also by business unit with digital taking a large part of the business now. So just worth noting that. Also some comments here around reserves, uh, total loan loss reserves reached uh, 23.39 billion euros. Uh, resulting in total coverage ratio of impaired assets of 68%. I think a lot of the banks at this stage trying to prove they have enough in the way of buffers. They've also spoken about liquidity position, regulatory ratios well above the 100% minimum requirement, also liquidity buffer comprising high quality liquid assets exceeded 300 billion euros in March 2023, 97% were level one. So again, just giving extra detail here to prove what sort of position the bank is in. Yeah, um, look, you've covered everything 
beautifully, as ever, especially I, I take your point about the, the non-performing loan levels and how they're stunningly low, despite the fact, all those concerns we have about the Spanish and European economy. Uh, one thing I will say, just on the shares, they've rallied 26% year-to-day, way outperforming a UBS. But when you look at the actual valuation on a price-to-book valuation, given all the concerns that the market has at, for instance, a UBS has got to integrate, should we say, a problematic institution, UBS is still trading at one times, um, yet Santander is, is, a, is a decimal of that at 0.6 as well. So very interesting how the market is valuing these banks. Yes, it's had a strong value this year, unambiguously, and yet um, still trades at a big discount to UBS with all its problems. It does make you what lies ahead, wonder what lies ahead, and we think we've seen that through some of the other American counterparts, that there is stepped-up provisioning, the concerns around whether that NPL story starts to change at some point, even though it has been a fairly positive window and you can see even in these numbers in the first quarter net loan loss provisions that is steep 2.87 billion euros so that's the amount of money set aside in case we see souring loans. Um, Shall I move on to Novartis? Um, The shares in Novartis moved up 7% so far this year. They've had a really big rally actually off their March low which was around about 75 Swissy per share uh, up to about 90. So you can see that this the year movement modest when you look at where they were at the start of January. But actually, off those March lows, it is a very strong rally, over 15% rally. And actually, I'm really interested in um, the fact that I'll tell you who we're speaking to in a few moments' time. You can guess, though, can't you? And Novartis delivering strong sales growth, robust margin expansion, major innovation milestones, raising four-year guidance. It all looks very, very solid, doesn't it? So let's have a look. First quarter sales grew 8% at a constant currency uh, up 3% in US dollars, but core operating income up 15%. Again, a really solid, solid um, figure there as well. Um, increasing guidance um, on the basis of strong first quarter momentum. They now expect group sales to grow mid single digits from low to mid single digits. Um, they are saying that uh, Opink expected to grow high single digits as well, and the Sandoz spin off remains on track as well, of which that transaction is expected to be tax neutral as well. So very interesting um, from what we've had so far. And again, a lot of these um, statements, you've got to be honest, are, are off the top of what Novartis has to say. So we'll let the industry experts dig in some of the details. But it does look very positive. Yeah, I think uh, Sandos, the spin-off here, that is seen as quite key. It's been slated, right? It's still coming up in the second half. Obviously, you've had a number of companies now trying to test the window when it comes to IPOs and divestitures. So that'll be interesting to see whether they've got the timing right in terms of that particular business. But uh, I think at this point, uh, the market has been a little bit concerned about execution here. Uh, there have been a, a lot of different factors. Hyperinflation was something that Naz, uh, Vaz Narasimham had spoken to us about on the channel before. The uh, legacy impact of, of higher prices, but also uh, around coronavirus and the pandemic. Don't forget, health budgets changed enormously during that time frame. And as we progress now, it feels as though with things getting more challenging and a lot of stretched budgets for governments, whether we've got the same appetite, same commitment to healthcare. And I think uh, we had a, a just testing of that theory by Narasimham. So that'll be interesting to see whether there's been any improvement in the politics and the funding of uh, some of this uh, future healthcare needs. And that it's a great point. And a point that I'm sure you will raise with the CEO, Vaz Narasimhan. Uh, he will join us at 8.30 Central European time. Now, I mean, very interesting. You've been looking at banks this morning, uh, and now you're going to look at consumer staples. I don't know if they're through yet, but very interesting that actually when I read the letter from Terry Smith to the FT recently, he said, why would you go 
Why would you possibly go for the low margins in the banks and low return on equity when you've got consumer staples that are throwing off cash? Well, are they? Well, one of the issues, and this is uh, as we get into the weeds on the Nestle numbers today, is that uh, there have been enormous pricing pressures. And even though the company has lobbed price increases and announced more for this year, they've very much struggled to compensate for the high import costs. So uh, your Kit Kats or other chocolate bars that you may be purchasing have gone up, but it's still not enough to uh, line the pockets of the company uh, to the tune that they think they should be able to. And when it comes to the outlook uh, for full-year organic growth, that is 6 to 8% but still high single digits here. The outlook for fully adjusted EBIT margin, 17 to 17.5%. Uh, the company previously had reported slippage in its gross margin, don't forget. And the Q1 reported sales, they increased by 5.6% to 23.5 billion Swiss francs. The organic growth in that period was 9.3%. The company confirming that four-year growth target, trying to increase EPS by 6 to 10%. Q1 pricing growth, and this is key in terms of how much more they're seeing on the pricing side. That was up 9.8%. So a lot of heavy lifting here on the pricing side. Real internal growth, that is minus 0.5%. So you are seeing slippage here. Uh, in terms of what you're seeing on uh, just the expectations, you had an estimate of organic growth seen at 7.2%, so that number at 9.3% was higher than anticipated. On the revenue print, the 23 billion is uh, what you've got on the 23 billion Swissy on the print, but the market was setting up for a slightly better number than that at 23.27, so underwhelming on that revenue number that's crossing. Um. Really interesting figures, actually, there from Nestle. And, and again, you know, beautifully uh, related to our viewers as well. But interesting that the growth in sales came in its entirety from pricing growth. Yeah, that's right. And the EBIT margin at 17 to 17.5% on the outlook um, is also fascinating. So there is an accusation out there, and some economists uh, have been proponents of this view, that actually the inflation we are now seeing... Uh, is actually about the fattening of profit margins at the corporates rather than because of anything that's going on in the underlying raw material increases of, you know, in this case, a whole host of softs uh, for Nestle as well. Uh, and that view does seem to back up what we just saw from Nestle, that actually it's on the pricing that they are seeing all the growth rather than the actual underlying sales as well. So the, the accusation of uh, excess profits from the consumer staple companies will once again, I'm sure, be rearing its head on the back of these numbers. Well, don't forget margins expanded at some of these companies in recent years and the companies are keen to protect them. But in fact, in the, the previous numbers that reported, previous quarter, you saw slippage. And I think that's where the companies are now looking at the import side and say, if the import side is not improving, then we're going to ramp up prices and we're going to go hard at that increase. And I think as you're seeing, it's coming at the expense of some of the volume side now. Uh, but that increase, I mean, that is just stunning, isn't it? Close to 10% that is telling you about the price for the average person when but we still buy a lot of these products uh, on a regular basis for our groceries. Sure, items. and we have to, of course. But, but the question is, are the price inflations we're seeing in food substances at the moment because of raw material increases or because of fattening margins and excess profits? Uh, is that what's leading to the increased inflation and the stubbornly high inflation we're seeing uh, across the world? We'll dig into the numbers in a little bit, but uh, the, I think the company would argue that there's been slippage and that they're keen to counteract it. But coming up on the show, LVMH makes history after a rapid rise in its stock price. We'll have more after the break. 
And for more on UBS uh, and its plans to integrate Credit Suisse, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. The market cap of luxury goods company LVMH briefly hit $500 million in Monday's trade, becoming the first European company to do so. The company's share price has grown over 30% this year, making CEO Bernardo the world's richest person. Now Charlotte joins us with more. Uh, Charlotte, uh, we'll just uh, correct that to $500 billion uh, in terms of uh, market cap here. But uh, interesting, isn't it? As we talk about very large companies, they were mostly uh, located in the United States. This is seen as sort of almost like a tech play. A luxury in Europe has often been compared to technology in the United States. And it puts Bernardo no right out in front over Elon Musk in terms of personal wealth. Yes, and someone has said that now those luxury stocks are the growth stocks, um, just a bit like following the, the US ones. And interesting to see that uh, LVMH now in that very selective group of the largest capitalization in the world. So in the top 10, now it is the first, uh, the, the only European company, they're all American indeed, plus Saudi Aramco as the first one in that group. And in Europe, the, the next biggest company is Nestle at 320 uh, billion. So you see that how far ahead uh, LVMH is. And of course, it's just the, the the, the evolution of the stock for uh, luxury over the, five twi- the, the past five years, 223% up. And that's the case for all the luxury groups. And if you look just in Europe this year alone, uh, LVMH up more than 30%, Hermes 40%, L'Oréal again 30%. So all these, they're, they're the heavyweights of the CAC 40 now. They're all in the top 10 of the CAC 40, which means that the CAC is ahead of a lot of the European stocks because of the luxury uh, doing so well, of course, on the rebound and the reopening of uh, China post-COVID the reopening of this economy they expect a big rebound for those groups and so the CAC up 17% this year off the back of these luxury stocks rebounding so much. What is similar with this company versus other companies is the amount of uh, family that has been brought into the business uh, one of those you know good episodes of succession I think you could have almost a comparison here to the, the Murdoch empire where there are lots of children dotted across the business so in terms of you know who succeeds Bernard I know it feels like there's a number of challenges when you've got uh, the uh, eldest child, Delphine, the head of Christian Dior, uh, Antoine, who is the head of the holding company, three younger children also in the business. They are all in the business and it's interesting, it's really prepared them. At the same time, they've changed the age, the maximum age for the head of image was supposed to be 75 and they've changed that because now Bernard Arnault is 74 years old and so they moved it to 80. So they say he's not going anywhere for now. We're certainly preparing the succession. And so as you say, uh, his daughter Delphine, uh, the CEO of Dior, that is one of the uh, baby Sherry brand of the, of, of the group. Uh, as you said, Antoine Arnault uh, is the chair of Laura Piana, NCO of Berluti, uh, Alexandre, Jean-François, 
Frédéric, they're all in the business, in the different brands of it. One of them in particular, Tiffany's, uh, one of his son is, is in Tiffany's, and they are reopening their very flagship store this Friday. It's been three years refurbishing. I so I was on Fifth Avenue a couple of weeks back, and I looked yeah. across in that direction, and I realized that it was actually shut, that the store yeah. was not open. And then it's part of a huge regeneration, which could also be positive for the brand. Although we haven't heard about the investment required to upgrade this flagship store. No, you remember the largest acquisition for the group, $16 billion at the time. So that, that refurbishment started before LVMH took over. So they haven't disclosed the amount, but multi-million. They expect this to lift sales hugely because they say uh, that, that the Tiffany already more than doubled its operating profit since the acquisition. And some analysts expect that this, they could lift sales by 8 billion euros, Tiffany's, over the next three to five years. So again, huge potential for growth. And again, showing how LVMH is looking at the US market in particular, beyond China for a growth potential. Um. I think we need to make sure the viewers know, though, that Hermes and Louis Vuitton are very different companies from the rest of the sector because of the huge family ownership. And that, that's the key point. You talk about the, the family involvement um, on the board. Well, it's the family involvement and the share ownership as well, which changes the perspective a lot in terms of the free float for our viewers as well. I mean, LVMH trades on 26 times, which is a big premium to the broader sector, but it also has you know, pretty much a 50% shareholder ownership. And I'll give you the exact figure, 48.3 is owned by the Arno family. And the Hermes family is even larger on those stocks as well. But, but it hasn't done any harm for the share price. But what you've got to know when you get along for the ride in these two stocks is that you are buying family companies. A bit like when you bought the old Murdoch companies, you know that even though he had a less than 50% stake, it was very much a Murdoch company rather than um, buying something with a large free float where you could have influence over the board. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Show. Weekdays on CNBC.